Well, good morning. Good evening, church. Glad to be with you this evening. And as always, we do pray that uh, all is well and that you're all doing good and uh, that you're keeping your eyes on God because he's the one that's going to lead us through this this uncertain time and this difficult time. And we want to welcome those who might be also tuning in for the first time or have joined us for previous studies. Uh, We want to welcome you as well. And uh, we're going to uh, look at the book of Job this evening. And uh, I think the timing is right. And uh, it's a critical time. And a critical time to listen and get all that we can out of the book of Job. So let's open up in prayer. Father, we bow before you, Lord, and we thank you again for your enduring mercies, your abounding grace. Father, we thank you for your love towards us, God. We thank you that you are the creator, the maker of all things, and that, God, that you lead us and guide us, God, into every everything that, that we encounter, Lord. And God, we pray tonight that as we begin the book of Job, that, Father, you would speak to us. Father, you always do, but I pray that we would listen more than ever before, God. Especially as it's so relative, God, to what we are experiencing this evening, Lord, and, and the last couple of months. And, and we don't know uh, how much longer, God. But, Lord, you... Um, you do, and you have your word for us, God, <clears throat> to help us to get through. So, Lord, may you bless us tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, open your Bibles to Job chapter 1. Job chapter 1, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 12 this evening. And the title for the message is The Accuser and the Accused. Now, in Matthew chapter 7... Verses 24 through 27, Jesus teaches about the two foundations that man can build on. And Christ's words are the foundation of rock. Man's words or man's confidence is the foundation of sand. And sooner or later, the storms of life will come. They will come. And they're going to reveal, they will reveal, what foundation a man built his life on. And Jesus said, when the rains and the floods and the winds came and beat on the house of sand, again, built on man's confidence, Jesus said, that house fell, and great was its fall. And those rains and those floods and those winds represents the storms of life, illness, uncertainty, employment, unemployment, death, disappointments, challenges of all kinds. And for any building, the foundation is the most important of its construction. The foundation has to be deep, deep enough and solid enough to withstand the weight of the building as well as other stresses put upon it. Our lives are like buildings. And the quality of each foundation will determine the quality of that life. And too many times, inferior materials are used, like wood, hay, and stubble. And when the tests come, down come the structure. Psalmist said in Psalm 127, 1, Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. At one time or another, 
Almost everyone has felt like Job. And while we're going through trials and times of suffering, we're often overwhelmed by those trials and also overwhelmed by self-pity. Now, we want an explanation many times for why God allows these trials to happen. The book of Job, probably one of the most well-known books in the Bible, gives us an explanation of the troubling questions that we ask in life. The terrifying doubts that we have, the very real pain that many suffer. The book of Job can help us when we're surrounded with troubles by giving us a peek at how God sees our suffering. Ray Steadman, in his book, Let God Be God, wrote this. The first council of Nicaea, convened by Emperor Constantine in A.D. 325, was the first worldwide conference of the Christian church. At this council, many of the great doctrinal matters of the Christian faith, like the deity of Christ, were settled for all time. There, the Nicene Creed, a creed of Orthodox faith still recited in churches to this day, was adopted. Of the 318 delegates to the first Nicene Council, only 12 were whole in body. The rest, 306, had been maimed or crippled as a result of being tortured for their faith. Some had lost an eye or a hand. Others had suffered broken or dislocated bones and limbs. Some had been scarred by branding irons. In the early days of the Christian church, no one thought it was strange or unfair to suffer for Jesus' sake. Suffering was considered a normal part of the Christian life. It was expected. Most of us, as American Christians, have grown up feeling that we're entitled to a life of ease, comfort, and prosperity. And when suffering comes into our lives, we cry out in protest against the unfairness of it all. But when we read the writings of some of the great Christian saints of the past, we often find a more mature and accepting view of suffering. Oswald Chambers said this, Suffering is the heritage of the bad, of the penitent, and of the Son of God. Each one ends in the cross. The bad thief is crucified. The penitent thief is crucified, and the Son of God is crucified. By these signs, we know the widespread heritage of suffering. In other words, suffering is the heritage of all Christians. And the the suffering described in the book of Job happened to a man who was very wealthy. It happened to a man who had a big family, to a man who had a high position and a good reputation in the land, to a man that walked with God. And sometimes it seems like these kinds of people never go through the kind of trials the more common people often so, so often go through. But the book of Job tells us different. Asaph, he envied the proud and he almost stumbled over that. He said, my feet were slipping. And I was almost gone. He said, when I saw the prosperity of the wicked who seem to live such pain-free lives, they're healthy and strong. They don't have troubles like other people. They're not plagued with problems like everybody else. He says, you know, I, I I felt like I was, you know, walking with God in vain. But don't make the mistake that Asaph did. Envying those who are famous and envying those who are well off because 
they have, uh, because many times they have more problems than anybody else. The book of Job starts off by introducing Job to us as a man who had everything. The theme of the book is not patience. It's not Job versus Satan. It's not God versus Satan. It's not suffering. The book of Job, the theme of Job, the subject of Job is God. It's all about God, who is worthy of our uncompromised loyalty, no matter what our circumstances in life are. So let's begin now with verse 1, Job chapter 1. And it says, There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright and one who feared God and shunned evil. We see four things, four qualities of Job here in verse 1. First of all, Job was a real person. He wasn't some storybook character to pump you up, you know, when things get tough. Uh, This wasn't a fairy tale. This wasn't fiction. Notice it says in verse 1, it begins, there was a man. It's stating a fact. There was a man. This is a true story. Other places in the Bible back up Job's existence, and they speak highly of his character. Ezekiel mentions Job twice. Ezekiel speaks highly of Job, being a very godly man with godly behavior. Job is mentioned only once in the New Testament, and it confirms that he existed. And it also speaks highly of his character. And it says in James 5.11, you have heard of the perseverance of Job. So the Bible clearly confirms that Job existed and that he was a man of high character. Job lived in the land of Uz. Now, we really don't know where the land of Uz is or was. This man of Uz, it says, was named Job. And Job, his name uh, has been given different meanings. It means persecuted. It means hated. Uh, I've I've read that it means afflicted, one ever returning to God, or that he weeps. Uh, So the name suggests that he was given his name after this trial. So the meaning persecuted or hated is a good name for Job because of the suffering that he went through. Now we read, first of all, that it says that verse 1, Job was blameless and upright, one who feared God and shunned evil. Notice, so, so high, high character was a quality of Job. Now, there are four things, as I said, that said about his character here in verse 1. He was upright. Upright really means upright, right, righteous, just. And the word is used to refer to the righteous. Upright here describes what character Job had. What kind of character he had. The word explains Job's character. Secondly, it says that he was perfect. Now, this is per- the word perfect is used in the King James Version and is translated blameless in the New King James Version. Uh, it doesn't mean that Job was sinless. Job admits later on to his sinful failure. Uh, it means a thoroughness of righteousness. It suggests the extent of Job's righteousness, which was very great. Job was more than just a Sunday Christian. Job was a Christian every day of the week. And he was a Christian in everything that he did. Now, not a lot of people have this kind of righteousness to the point that it's in everything that they do. Third, it says of Job that he feared God. That is, he was morally reverent. That's what the word feared means. Job's reverence 
because of his righteousness shows the quality of his righteousness. And there are many who appear to be upright, but they don't fear God. They're not godly and they don't worship properly. True righteousness is what honors God. Now, people might say that you're a good guy, but that doesn't prove your goodness or righteousness. It's in your attitude towards God. Now, our land, as we pretty well know, it doesn't want God around. It makes laws to stop honoring God in some places. This shows a wicked character and a land that encourages dishonoring God. A land that does that isn't a good land. It's a wicked land because righteousness honors God. We also read that Job shunned evil. That means, the word shun means to turn away, to go away. Good character stays away from evil. It doesn't want to, you know, it doesn't want to be around evil. It avoids evil at all costs. It doesn't go to places of evil. It doesn't look at evil. It doesn't think evil. It doesn't speak evil. People who play around with evil. They know that they, they watch evil movies, they go to evil shows, they, they go to evil places, they read evil books, they associate with evil people. Uh, those that do, they don't have Job-like character, and they're not Job, Job-like in their character. Job didn't want to have anything to do with evil, and he avoided it all the time. Staying away from evil is a hard thing to do, especially when we are surrounded by evil. And you know what? Evil can often separate you from your friends, even family. Why? Because you don't want anything to do with it. You don't want to go with them. You don't want to go with them to some evil place or to do some evil thing. And yeah, you'll be talked about because you didn't go. You'll be accused of all kinds of a holier-than-thou attitude. But you know what? We are told, we are exhorted to avoid evil at all costs. Because if you don't, you could suffer a lot. And it could, especially when it comes to eternity. Look at verse 2 now. And seven sons and three daughters were born to him. Verse 2 tells us that Job was a family man. He had ten children, but uh, as we're going to see, they were all taken from him in his trials. But in the end, God graciously blessed him with another seven sons and three daughters. And of all the blessings that Job received after his trials, they were the best of them all. Scripture spends more time on Job's blessings than on any other thing after his trial and showing that children are truly a blessing. Verse 3. Also his possessions were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and a very large household, so that, this, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. Now, verse 3 describes Job's wealth. He had 7,000 sheep, and, and most of the wool would have been sold. He would have kept some of those sheep to make warm, some of that wool to make warm clothes for the winter. And the family's food would have been provided from these animals and acres of crops. It says that he also had 3,000 camels. Now, he may have rented his camels out. And those camels were, were his, also his personal transportation. Camels were like trucks in, in Job's day. He may have rented them out. And, uh, you know, uh, the camels were called the ships of the desert. 
They were good for caravans because they could go uh, for a long time. They could go to, uh, for days without water and they could live off, you know, very few plants. It says he had 500 yoke of oxen, which meant he had 1,000 oxen because it would be two per, per yoke. They were used to plow his fields to prepare the fields for planting the seed that would grow his crops for food. He had 500 female donkeys. During Job's time, female donkeys provided donkey milk, which was a delicacy in Job's day. And female donkeys were better to have than horses because they could live off much less than any other animal except for the camel. He had a very great household, which speaks of servants, who were the workers that he had that took care of his livestock and who plowed his land. Job had a big business with a lot of employees, showing that he really was the richest man in the whole area. Job's wealth made him a legend. He was considered to be the greatest man in his area of the world. His reputation was great. Then verse 4, it says, And his sons would go and feast in their houses, each on his appointed day. And would send and invite their three sisters to eat and to drink with them. Now, in the King James Version, it says, uh, it uses the phrase, his day. Uh, It's translated appointed day in the New King James. Now, his day or his appointed day could refer to a birthday. In Job chapter 3, 1, it says, "After after this opened Job his mouth and cursed his day. It could be the day that he was born, uh, speaking of his birthday. Verse 5. So it was when the days of feasting had run their course that Job would send and sanctify them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did regularly. Verse five, uh, verse four says the family was eating and drinking. Now, there's nothing wicked about eating and drinking in itself. But it's when people get together to eat and drink that it can be a big danger to them. Eating and drinking to feed and cater to the flesh, the flesh being our physical appetite, it often leads to the sinfulness of feeding other physical appetites. And that's what Job was worried about here in verse 5. This celebration, let's say they're celebrating a birthday party and there's drinking and they're having a good time. You know, and you know what happens, you know, at family gatherings, if you have family to drink. I know, you know, it happened at mine that, that you know, things can get, start getting out of hand and, and things are said and things are done and, and you can either get caught up in it or you can say, you know what, it's time for me to go. That's what Job was worried about here. Uh, He was afraid that this celebration might lead his kids to ungodly behavior. And Satan often trips us up through, through things, using things that aren't evil in themselves. But if we do them too much and for too long, it can lead us to ungodly behavior. We get caught up in the time. And it's a clever trick that Satan loves to use to lead us into ungodly behavior using, you know, again, acceptable behavior. So we can't ever let our guard down when it comes to temptation because it can strike anytime, anywhere. So when the party was over, what Job would do, he would purify his children. He'd get up early in the morning. He'd offer a burnt offering for each one of them. 
Job said for himself, Job said to himself that perhaps my children have sinned and have cursed God in their hearts. This was something that Job was concerned about and, and, and he would make these offerings for his children regularly. Job's concern for this innocent gathering, this innocent maybe birthday party, shows his wise and his good character. He didn't ignore the fact that, you know, that evil could, could result from even an innocent birthday party. Not only that, Job went to a lot of trouble to protect his children from evil. The Bible shows that Job was concerned about his children's behavior. And he was a wise father. Job didn't take evil for granted, and neither should we. He didn't let his guard down when it came to evil, especially when it came to his kids. And it says that Job would rise early in the morning. Job would rise early in the morning. Job would get up early in the morning and he would take care of his spiritual things. Job did this regularly. You see, Job was committed to his spiritual responsibility and his concerns. And holiness was something that Job was always concerned about. And man, that is something that we need to always be concerned about. Holiness. Verse 6. Now, verses 1 through 5, it kind of gives us an introduction to who Job is, who he was, the, the, you know, the, the things that he had, uh, the, the, the prosperity and, and all of the luxuries of life. And now, beginning in verse 6, Satan is going to attack his character. Look at verse 6 now. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also, and Satan also came among them. Now we see here the mystery of God's permissive will. In verses 6 through 12, we learn what, what, we learn what, you know, what brought on these terrible sufferings in Job's life. And it was the accusation that Satan made against Job. And it had to do with why Job was such a good guy. So it wasn't sin that, that brought this on. It wasn't sin that caused this devastation in, in Job's life. It wasn't anything that he did that caused his suffering. Now, this is the part of, the, of Job that we have to learn well. Because if we don't, we won't properly understand the rest of the book of Job. The place where this accusation took place was in heaven. Now these verses help us, we're really kind of getting a peek behind the scene of the unknown spiritual realm to see what happened here. Verse 6 starts out, notice, there was a day. Boy, you know, you, you can underline that just so when you read it, there was a day. And you can relate it to a past day or you can look at it as a future day that there's going to be a day when everything changes. And that's what happens now beginning with verse 6. Everything's changing. In verses 1 through 5, like I said, we were looking at Job and his wonderful family and all that he had. I mean, you couldn't ask for anything more. And then Job goes to sleep that night. But there's something else that's going on that Job has no, that knows nothing about. The same thing happens to you and the thing, same thing happens to me. When we're not aware of it, God is working out his plan 
that would blow us away, even shock us if we knew. He's allowing things to get started now that we would never expect. And you know what? As I read this, I, I really can relate this to what we're all going through right now with this pandemic. Without Job knowing, I mean, who would, who would have ever, ever thought we'd wake up one day and find ourselves in the situation we're in right now? Again, without Job knowing, something is happening in the heavens. God is allowing things to get started, like I said, that we'd never expect. In a sense, we're peeking into heaven to watch what's going on there. We're in the presence of God and the sons of God and Satan. The sons of God refers to angels. They were always there with God, ready to do his service. Satan is our adversary or accuser. He's there too in this scene. And he accuses God's people day and night. He's always trying to, to, to say how bad we are and what failures we are and we're, we're good for nothing. And, and, you know, it's true. But you know what? God loves us so much that he saved us. He took care of that. God cares for us. And we always have to keep in mind that Satan isn't some kind of cartoon character. He's not some myth who sits on your shoulder and he tells you, you know, to do bad things. Satan is the most beautiful, brilliant, powerful archangel that God ever created. And you know what? He hasn't lost his brilliance. He hasn't lost his beauty. And he hasn't lost his power. Genesis 3.1 tells us that Satan is more cunning. The word cunning means crafty, shrewd. He's more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 11.14, And Satan himself can transform himself into an angel of light. And Satan is very evil. And his favorite trick is working behind the scenes. But just because he's invisible does not mean that he's not real. And we'll see later on that he has a personality. And he's always busy in a never-ending commitment to destroy God's people and to fight against God's plan for us. This is the evil adversary that we see here standing in the heavens with a group of faithful angel servants. And from verses 7 through 12, we're going to listen in on a conversation like no other conversation you'll find in the whole Bible. The Lord God sees the intruder. And notice what he says to him in verse 7. And the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? So Satan answered and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. God's question here, now when he asked Satan, where do you come from? God's question doesn't mean that he didn't know. Because as we know, God is omniscient. He's all-knowing. God knows everything. His question could be asked like this. Tell me, Satan, what have you been up to? (laughs) What's been going on? And Satan's answer back to God is short and it's to the point. He says, God, well, you know, I've been, you know, going back and forth. I've been patrolling the earth. I've been watching everything that's going on. And it shows that Satan has access to this planet as well as the heavens. Satan moves all around the earth just like his demons do. Satan can go anywhere, everywhere he wants to go. The earthly laws of nature now that, that keep us here, they don't affect Satan. Being supernatural, Satan can move instantly from one place to another. He can, go for, he can leave Covina right now and in a, in a twinkling of eye, he can be in South America. When Satan says he's been roaming about the earth, that's exactly what he means. Look at verse 8. 
Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? Think of it. Notice, he says, Have you considered my servant Job? What, what, a, I mean, what a wonderful name to be called. My servant. Even though, even though you know, Job was great in the eyes of men, in God's eyes, Job couldn't have been more impressive to God, uh, you know, being his servant. He was his servant. Verses 9 and 10. Let me find verse 9 here. It says, So Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. In other words, God, look, you've blessed Job so much with so many riches. He has everything a man could want. So why wouldn't he love you? You've always protected him. You've protected his home. You've protected his property. You've made him prosper in everything that he does. Think about what you've done, God. You've protected his body from sickness. You've protected his family from destruction. You've protected everything that he owns. He hasn't made. The way you protect him, you know, every, everybody would envy that. The accuser is saying, God, Job is your favorite. You're playing favorites with him. He's your pet. He's your favorite. Why wouldn't he worship you? We see here that Satan has an intellect. Because we see him talking with the Lord. We see that Satan has emotions because he has hostile feelings towards Job. Satan also has a will because his purpose is to destroy Job, hoping that Job will disgrace God and dishonor him. And Satan's whole plan and his great hope is to bring Job down. And you know what? His hope and desire is the same for you and me. He wants to bring us down. He wants to bring God's people down. Verse 11. But now... Stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. So Job says, but if you were to bring him down to the ground, and you were to rub his face in the dirt, and you were to take everything that he has from him, and you were to make him live like the rest of humans, the rest of the way, the rest, like the rest of humans do, he'll curse you to his face. He will turn on you like a rabid dog. And we'll see that Satan can't see the force, can't foresee the future. You know what what Satan said here about Job was totally wrong, and he's not going to respond the way he's not going to respond to God the way Satan said he would. Satan is sharp, and it's a clever plan, but it's also unfair. Job did not deserve what happens to him, even in the slightest way. Job has walked with God, and especially in his older years. And you know what? That's, you know, as, as you get older, you think, you know, you're going to ride off into the sunset and live happily. It, it, you understand, Satan could care less about your age. He could care less about who, male or female. He could care less about anything. He has a purpose. He has a plan. And that's all he cares about. None of those things impress Satan. Your age, your wealth, your power, Nothing. Doesn't care at all. He says, he, he says to God, you want to know what Job is really made of? You really, you want to see what really what he thinks of you, God? Just take away. Take away all of his toys. 
Take away all of his luxury. Take away all of his, all of his protection. Strip away his comfort. And you'll see immediately he will turn on you. And he'll definitely curse you to your face. Again, Satan was telling God, hey, quit treating him like a favorite child. Quit spoiling him and treat him like everybody else on earth. Let him see what it feels like to suffer the death of a child. Let him lose his house. Let him lose his job. Let him lose his health. Let, let you know, everything he worked for his whole life be taken away from him. Let everything that's important to him be taken away. Let it all be taken away at the same time and you'll see just exactly what's under that that upright image. So Satan makes his accusation very clear. In a nutshell, he's saying, God, he's worshiping you because of what he gets out of you. At the same time, you'll see just exactly, you know, in other words, you know, you're, you're, you're only first in his life, God, because you take care of him. He's just using you. And as if God said, okay, I've heard enough. Listen to what he says in verse 12. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. So just stop for a moment. And think about what God just said to Satan. All that he has is in your power. Look at the permission slip he hands over to Satan. It's scary. But he adds a limitation to what Satan can do. Only do not lay a hand on his person. Don't touch his life. Don't touch his body or his soul or his mind. You can take away all of his stuff. You can attack his family. Just leave the man alone himself. And with the Lord's permission, it's like Satan didn't wait to hear another word. He just, boom, he was gone. He left, took off. You know, probably, you know, with a a sly grin and and just, you know, rubbing his hands together. Oh boy, man, I, I got him now. Now, keep in mind, Job has no idea. He knows nothing about this conversation. So here in verse 12 is is where we're going to stop for now until, again, we, we meet again next Sunday. But you know what? Meditate on these verses. Go back and read them slowly. And ask the Holy Spirit to, to show you great and wondrous things. And then we'll come back to Satan's plan, Lord willing, next Sunday. But for now, let's think about how all of this applies to us this evening. First of all, we we have a supernatural enemy that we can't see, but he's real. We deal with him or one of his minions on a regular basis. And he hopes that his devotions, I'm sorry, he hopes that his devious plans will mess with your mind and weaken you. Spiritually and physically and eventually wear you down to bring you down. Satan wants to ruin your testimony as he's destroying your life. And in the process, if it means ruining your family relationships, he'll go there too. Remember, Satan has no boundaries. And if it means tempting you to secretly sin, which you wouldn't have done before, 
in earlier days, he'll go there too. Whatever it takes to bring you down, he'll go there. He'll do it. Secondly, remember, there are trials that we'll go through that we don't deserve. But understand and accept the fact that God allows them. You see, accepting that fact and submitting to the, to the trials helps you. It, it helps. It, it, it's easier to deal with them. Trials are a part of life. We don't deserve them. But you know what? They have to be endured. They have to be endured. Listen to what Sidney Smith wrote. He said, evil is to be endured. Let us never forget that the fifth and greatest gospel is the life of Jesus Christ. He acted for us as well as taught that in the desert, in the deserts of Judea, in the hall of Pilate, on the cross, his patience shows us that evil is to be endured and his prayers point out to us how alone it can be, that his evil can be alleviated. 2 Timothy 4.5, it says, Endure afflictions. James chapter 5, 10 and 11, My brethren, take the, uh, the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed. Notice, we count them blessed who endure. You have heard the perseverance of Job. 2 Timothy 2, 3, Paul said, You must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Peter said in 1 Peter 4.19, Therefore let those who suffer according to the will of God, notice according to the will of God, commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. And then Jesus said it in Matthew 10.22, He who endures to the end will be saved. We're exhorted over and over to endure. There are people in our church who have lost loved ones, children, who have had or have cancer, who have lost houses, jobs, their health, who didn't deserve it. And it wasn't a fair fair deal in life, but it was all allowed by God. And the same can be said about you. In the mystery of God's will, we can never explain or totally understand it. You know, Isaiah made it clear, you know, his ways are not our ways and, and our ways are not his ways. Don't try to understand each thing that God does in his profound and mysterious plan for your life because, you know, it'll torment you. It'll drive you crazy trying to figure God out. And if you you don't get what is being taught right now and you ignore what I'm saying right now, you become more and more confused and then you become resentful and then you get bitter. And see, that's exactly what Satan wants right now for you. And you know what? Satan will have won the day. He'll have won the day. As I said, accept God's plan for your life, at least this this part of it for your life. Accept it. Submit to it as a part of his mysterious plan for your life. Endure the trial that's been allowed by God. And remember, nothing, nothing comes into your life, nothing touches your life that hasn't been first filtered through the hands of God. It didn't just come upon you unaware on God's part. It didn't just happen and then God go, oh, how did that happen? God is in full control. And because he is, he has the sovereign right to allow trials that we don't deserve. Third, remember, there's a plan we will look at and don't understand. 
But understand, it is the best plan. Whatever God has for me is the best. Because God, God wants the best for me. And though each part of his plan may not be fair, it may not be enjoyable, remember, it works together for good. Jeremiah 29, 11, you all know that verse. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. The disease Job later on endured, it wasn't good. In and of itself, the the disease wasn't good. But it worked together for good. And, 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 you know, believe it or not, the pandemic that we're experiencing right now, hey, in and of itself, it is not good. But it's going to work together for good. What we can see is, is very little. We, can, we, we only see very little. What we see only now. But notice, God sees all things. We see very minimal and we can see only the things going on. Now. But God sees all things. And God's heavenly plan is at work right now. Again, this pandemic, it did not happen without God's knowledge. It didn't happen as a whoops. It just, you know, God was fully aware. For some purpose much greater than I can see or know. So again, his plan is at work right now. And God doesn't need to, nor is he obligated to explain it to us. And here's the thing. If God tried to tell us what he was doing and why and what was going to happen, we wouldn't understand it anyway. Because his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. His ways are higher than our ways. But just remember, the father knows what's best for his children. That's what we are to rest in. Don't rest in it. Don't, don't concern yourself with the things that you don't know. Rest in the things that you do know. And fourth, remember that there are results that we experience that we couldn't foresee, but they're necessary. There are results that we can't foresee, but they're necessary. And I don't know where you are tonight. But I'd willing, be willing to bet that some of you are going through something that's unfair. And there's a good chance that you simply don't deserve what's happening to you. And the effects of it may already, may already be starting to get to you. And maybe you're becoming angry and you're becoming resentful. And don't let it make you bitter. You probably didn't think it would come to this. Or that it would come to you. But it has. But trust what God's word teaches us. Whatever has happened is a necessary part of your spiritual growth and my spiritual growth. It is necessary. And if you're in the, in the same place Job is tonight. Then if nothing else, it has prepared you to pay closer attention to the message that's given all through the book of Job. We have only seen a glimpse of how all of this has started. And the story doesn't end with Satan leaving the presence of the Lord. There's a whole lot more to the story of Job. And the more the story unfolds, the more we begin to see it. You know, um, 
will realize that 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 life isn't just hard it's not fair as well and then when when we when we think that God isn't doing anything when we think that he doesn't see what's going on and he seems to be silent you begin to wonder are you there where are you don't you see what's going on how long God are you going to let this go on and what seems like he's nowhere to be found, it will make you wonder, like I said, do you even care? But know that he is there and that he does care. And remember, he is in the midst of the fiery furnace with you. Just like he was with Daniel and his three friends. Father, thank you so much for the book of Job, God. And I pray that your spirit, God, would open the book of Job to us now more than ever before, God. That your spirit would give us the insights, the treasure, the wonders, the beauty of your word, God. And the Father, it would not anymore just be a story that we've read in the past, but a reality. God, that we would put ourselves in Job's place. And that, Father, we would learn the things that Job learned. And that, God, you would reveal to us the things that we need to be shown. Things that maybe need to be removed from our life and things that need to be placed into our lives. And so, Lord, we pray again that you would just bless our time in the book of Job for your glory and for our good. And it's in Jesus' wonderful name that we pray. Amen. Awesome.